Ukraine is a mess. Don't blame Donald Trump for that. Well, you know, one minute. One minute. Okay. Yeah, we need the NATO. We are present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, coming to you recorded from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also in the heart of Europe here in Belgium. Today, we're going to take a close look at Turkey, what it's driving its foreign policy choices in a changing world, and how both allies and rivals are responding. I lived and worked in Turkey for nearly 30 years, so it is a really great pleasure to welcome Ambassador Selim Yanel to War and Peace to help us make sense of it all. I have many warm memories of learning about Turkish policy, not just in Ambassador Yanel's grand office as ambassador to the EU for many years until 2017, but over many previous years in the ministry in Ankara. It's a tribute to Ambassador Yanel's role that he has also been at the heart of Turkey's relationship with the EU for decades, and that his most recent official post was as Undersecretary of the Ministry of EU Affairs of Turkey. Ambassador, congratulations on your new role as President of the Istanbul-based think tank, the Global Relations Forum, and uh, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's very nice to see you both. We're in Istanbul, you're in Brussels, but at least technology allows us to meet again. It's really quite lovely how connected we can be. I want to start off by setting the scene a little bit from here in Brussels for all the connectivity offered us by technology. But from here in Brussels, it can seem as though Turkey has become more and more active, more and more assertive in its foreign and security policy outside of its borders, whether it's in the Eastern Mediterranean, whether it's more forceful backing of Azerbaijan in the second Nagorno-Karabakh war fought at the end of last year whether it's activism in Syria and Libya, which of course are longstanding. But 2020 particularly, it did seem like there was an awful lot of activity. Do you think that Turkey has become more activist? And if so, why do you think that might be the case? Well, Turkey has become more activist, especially for the last 20 or 25 years. It's not due to the period in which uh, the AKP has been empowered. It started before then. Because during the Cold War, Turkey was on one side. The whole world was divided into two. But after that, you know, uh, things changed and there was a vacuum in certain areas. During the Cold War, of course, Turkey did not have the means or the opportunities to be more active. But since the Cold War ended, gradually things developed and Turkey became, let's say, economically more developed as well and became to be more interested in the world. As I said, there was a vacuum because the Soviet Union had gone and the U.S. was not as involved as it was before, only in certain places because of 9-11 and others. But then Turkey started to become more and more involved in its immediate neighborhood. It became more economically developed. So for a while, Turkey was actually producing, uh, giving out economic development aid, like you know the Norwegians or the Swedes. Turkey all of a sudden became a country that was giving development assistance. So Turkey became more active because it had more means to do so and the opportunities. So this is not a new phenomenon. It's been there for two decades now. But lately, of course, Turkey has been more assertive as well. Not just active, more assertive. We've seen that in Libya, we see that in Syria, in the Caucasus, and in the Eastern Mediterranean. That's true. But as I said, you know, Turkey has become more active and assertive in a gradual way. So what you're describing is a Turkey that is taking on more and more of a, shall I say, great power role? Is that how you see it? Turkey growing into being one of the major players on the global stage? Well, not on the global stage. I wouldn't go that far yet. But I'd say at least for the region, definitely in our old region, let's say, where we were involved in the Balkans and Europe, Middle East, and even Africa, of course, the Caucasus. So I don't think that would be called to be a 
major player globally, but at least a major player regionally. When you say assertive ambassador, that seems to be another way of saying with a military edge, which is certainly new in my experience of Turkey. How has that changed things for you as a diplomat? Well, definitely, especially with what happened in Syria. Once the civil movements started and the refugees started to stream in, And of course, the civil war in Syria, not only that, but because what happened in Iraq, ISIS, all that was on our border, on our southern border. So Turkey had to be more and more involved to protect it. And we now have some kind of a secure line south of our border. So Turkey was pushed into be more militarily involved in those places. But beyond that, uh, we're not militarily involved in Cyprus, for example. But as things progress, we have sent ships and planes, I think, to Libya. And I think that we're more assertive in certain places in which our role is, let's say, required. And what is that doing to some of the Turkey's traditional relationships? As Turkey becomes more assertive, are, is it filling vacuums or is it finding itself in tension, including with old allies here in the EU and the United States? Not only that, I mean, unfortunately, we've had a breakdown in certain foreign relations. I mean, up, up until recently, Turkey used to have good relations with almost all the neighborhood countries. But you've seen, for example, that we've had very bad relations right now with Israel, with Egypt, with those countries in which we had very, very good relations in the past. And of course, that has brought on some changes in the neighborhood, uh, which is not conducive for us. In the EU, in the US, of course, we can talk about that. Our relations are sour, to say the least. But I mean, within the region, we should have been able to improve our relations because right now, not having an ambassador in Egypt or in Israel is not helping us at all. When we look at the last year and perhaps the last 20 years under AKP, you've said there wasn't much of a change, really. It was the big change was the end of the Cold War. But is there such a thing as an Erdogan doctrine that some pundits around the world are talking about? There's a package of foreign policy imperatives that are actually associated with the current leader. I wouldn't call it a doctrine. What I've seen for the last 10 years or even beyond that, uh, I mean, before that, is that Turkey is more reactionary to certain events. Turkey has reacted to Syria. Turkey has reacted to Libya, to Eastern Mediterranean. So it's not a policy of being proactive. It's maybe reaction in which seems to be more active. I know this might sound as a contradiction, but Turkey is basically reacting to certain events. Not that it has thought of these things that we should go into Syria, we should do something in Libya. But no, things have happened. Events have forced Turkey to react in that sense, especially in the Eastern Mediterranean. If we're going to talk about that, what's happened with Greece and, and you know, Greek Cyprus, what's happening in the Eastern Mediterranean. Turkey is basically reacting to the events there. I mean, it's not being seen as very conducive to what's going on with regard to energy, with regard to the peace in the region. But it's basically a reaction to what's been done by other countries. Is this something that Turkey should be doing better to improve its standing, improve its relationships? Are others at fault? But And if they are at fault, what should they and what should Turkey be doing to improve matters? I think it's both sides. Of course, Turkey has receded from acting diplomatically. You know, the rhetoric has been too high, too strong. And I would say that some of the reactions that we have given by the president is more personal. We used to have a more state-driven foreign policy. Right now, we're seeing is more personally driven foreign policy. The fact that Turkey does not get along with Egypt, with Sisi, is basically personal. Let's go into Russia, for example. On Russia, we don't see eye to eye on any issue, whether it's Syria, Libya, even Cyprus. But yet, we have good relations 
even excellent relations because of the personal relationship that the president has with President Putin. So it's a strange situation that we find ourselves in. This is not the classic Turkish foreign policy that we've been accustomed to. And I think that we should go back to at least some of them and have better diplomatic relations with all of the countries that we did have them before. What defines a good relationship under these circumstances? I mean, it's just getting along and being able to sit down at the negotiating table and not hurl invective is nice. But as you say, with Russia, what does Turkey get out of the personal rapport between the leadership under these conditions? Is it simply that it keeps things from getting too bad? Or are there compromises that can be struck as a result? Is Turkey really gaining from this relationship with Russia? Well, it basically boils down to dialogue, talking and talking. For example, with the EU, we've had less and less dialogue, and this is the situation we find ourselves in. So now I put the blame Turkey-EU more or less equal. But on Russia, you're right, because if we didn't have this dialogue, if we didn't have this personal relationship, the relationship with Russia would have been much, much worse. We shot down their plane and, uh, you know, the relations could have gone just really, really bad. But because of that dialogue that the two presidents had, we were able to counter it. We're not having the same thing with EU or let's see what happens with the US. As I said, with Israel and, and Egypt, again, it's all personal. We don't have a dialogue with them. Maybe it's our fault. Maybe it's their fault. I don't want to put any blame on anybody. But both sides have to reconsider their policies, definitely. They have to, something that is basically not seen in foreign policy is empathy. I've seen some studies on empathy, and I think that this is something that's very necessary in foreign policy to be able to understand the situation or the position of the other side and then talk with less rhetoric. That's such an important point, Ambassador, because seeing how Europeans react to Turkey now living in Belgium, I'm constantly surprised at the what exactly what you say, a lack of empathy, understanding of context. How do you think Turkey can do better in reaching out? What's missing? How can Turkey bounce back? Turkey can bounce back by going into the reform process, especially after the coup attempt in 2016. The relationship with most of our Western partners has gone down the drain. It's unfortunate. And we have to go back, you know, building up the trust, having more fundamental rights, justice, human rights, political freedom, all these things that have been, let's say, submerged. It's unfortunate what we're finding ourselves in, because if you look back when you were in Turkey, things were much more brighter. We were the star. We were making a lot of progress. We were getting closer to the union, but things have just gone backwards since then. So, of course, it's incumbent upon us to move ahead, make some changes. As I said, the rhetoric should be much more lighter, not accusing each side. So there's a lot of things that we definitely have to do. But again, this has to be met by the others. They have to also join in the chorus of less and less rhetoric. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. And Hugh and I are speaking with Ambassador Selim Yenel of Turkey, President of the Global Relations Forum, about Turkish foreign policy. So Ambassador, with a new administration set to take office in the United States, do you think this is going to be a net positive for Ankara's efforts, if there are to be any, of restarting a more diplomatic process? Or is the United States just going to be too wrapped up in its own issues for things to change very much? I think that things will definitely change because we will now have a more predictable administration in the U.S. The Trump era was erratic. It was unsustainable in many aspects. Although, again, the personal relationship that President Erdogan with President Trump, we were able to avoid sanctions with regard to the S-400 missiles that we bought from Russia. But with the Biden administration, of course, after a few months, once the administration settles down and maybe hopes to settle internal issues, 
they will probably look around and see where the crises are. But I don't think that they will make a Turkey a priority yet. I think they will seek out other areas in foreign policy, and they will probably send out some feelers to Turkey to you know, overcome this problem that we have with the S-400s. But uh, if we don't resolve it in the next six months, I think that we might find ourselves in a predicament that would not be suitable for our relationship. How could it be resolved? What are possible ways forward from this impasse? Well, I mean, I think that, like quite a few other people, that buying the S-400s was not a very bright idea. But now that we have it, we have to find a way to make them non-operational. We are a NATO member. And according to NATO, Russia is at least an adversary. And you're not supposed to buy stuff from your adversary. So we have to find a solution within NATO, then tell them or show them that, look, this is not going to change our position within NATO. And we have to get back onto the F-35 fighter planes, because the first reaction with regard to the S-400 was to move Turkey out of that. So that was the most important sanctions that we already have. I mean, maybe more sanctions will come afterwards because of the legislation that the U.S. has, but already we're being punished, being put out of the F-35s. So we have to find a way definitely to change the position of the U.S. within NATO, though, and show them that, look, the S-400s is in the boxes or whatever. We have to find a way to show that, you know, they will not hurt our position in NATO. Can you really put S-400s back in the boxes? I mean, if they were bought, they must have been bought for a reason. And it seems very unlikely that that is something that most people in Turkey would agree to. I mean, that's the difficult position. I know it's we're between a rock and a hard place, as they say. But I mean, if you want to make progress, then we have to find a way to remove the S-400s because they're incompatible with the NATO system. If you remember way back when the Cypriots, the Greek Cypriots bought this S-300s, They were moved to Greece, to Crete, for example. And I think they're in crates there, something similar to that. So if we're going to find ourselves, find a way out of this, I'm not a NATO expert, but I think that's the most reasonable way to move ahead. Otherwise, we'll be facing situations in which we find ourselves that we're out of the F-35s and who knows what else will hurt us. We'll be hurting our own selves with this. And also, if we look a bit back at how Vice President Biden in the past as Vice President to President Obama, he his record is of uh, alignment much more with uh, Turkey's adversaries in the region. Do you think that will carry over to the presidency or do you think that uh, he will see things differently? Well, I think that uh, he has been involved in foreign relations for a long, long time as a senator before. So he knows Turkey. He knows the president. He's been here, I think, four times as vice president. He will look around and see what has changed since the last four years. And I think that he will move ahead more or less within the same framework of his own ideas that he had before. There will be slight changes, maybe, but not much. That's my expectation. To move a little bit geographically, I'd like to talk just a little bit about Turkey's policy in Syria and Libya and what outcomes Ankara would really like to see in the Middle East. Well, I think on Syria, of course, we'd like to have the civil war ended and we'd like to have the Syrians go back to their country. But that doesn't seem to be feasible right now, because even if they do go back, where will they go? And will they not be persecuted? So I think that we'll be living with our Syrian, let's say, refugees for some time to come. We already have about more than three million. I don't know exactly what the number is, but we now have a Syrian minority in Turkey. This is something that's a new reality that we have to accept. Uh, we're having thousands of thousands of people, children born here. So we have to think about their education, their health, etc., etc. So that's the Syrian issue. With regard to Libya, of course, we have to see how that civil war is going to be resolved because now there are two powers there. And it's surprising that within the EU, Italy is supporting the legitimate government while France is with Haftar. 
So that has to be resolved. So unless these things are resolved, I don't think that we'll you know, have a more peaceful region. As regard to Israel, of course, we would like to have better relations with them because that has been there for, for years. And that's really unfortunate. Again, with Egypt, I think that we should depersonalize the relationship Turkey has in foreign policy. That's crucial. Unless we do that, I don't think that we'll be able to be more active as we used to be. And uh, we haven't even touched upon the relationship we have with the Saudis and, and other Arab countries. We're focused mostly on Qatar. Qatar is the only country that in, in the Arab world in which we have very good relations. And that should not be the case. It should not be only Qatar. It should be the other countries as well. So Turkey is being more and more isolated because of the foreign policy that we have right now. It's quite unfortunate. And it's not our usual Turkish foreign policy. Ambassador, in the last couple of months, there have been lots of signs that Ankara is trying to reset or reboot quite a few of those relationships, perhaps even reaching out to Damascus. Do you see any hope that there will be such a change or that such a change is already underway? Well, I'm not privy to that, but I do hope that it will change. Even if it does change, I'm sure it will be very, very gradual. I would hope for a big, nice surprise that it does change, but uh, I'm not really sure about it because, as I said, I'm not privy to what's going on behind closed doors. Before we close, how do you see the emerging new order in the South Caucasus shifting things? And do you see that as an opportunity for Turkey to cooperate with old allies? Uh, If so, how? Uh, Do you see it as one more likely problem between Turkey and European countries, the United States? Well, what's happened in the Caucasus shouldn't be a problem between Turkey and other countries. But I see it in a different light. I see it that soft power has not been successful. And, you know, if you look at what happened in the Caucasus between Azerbaijan and Armenia, the Minsk group has been trying to resolve it somehow for the last 30 years, and they come up with nothing. And in the end, things have changed on the ground. Azerbaijan has become more, let's say, military advanced. And I think that uses opportunity. And nobody had tried to stop them. And they saw the examples of what happened in Crimea, what happened in Ukraine. Soft power has receded. And so that's why, unfortunately, we're seeing that, you know, hard power has made a big comeback. We see that in Syria. We see that in Libya. And I think Azerbaijan, seeing the circumstances around the world at that time, moved ahead and gained ground and resolved most of the problem that existed there. But with regard to Turkey and Turkey's involvement there, well, it's over now. And I don't think that it has produced much of a problem with our European allies. I don't think that there's a big problem there. Doesn't the new situation that has now emerged give Turkey a big opportunity to reach out to Armenia and open the border? I mean, after all, you remember when the border was closed, it was all about those extra districts around Nagorno-Karabakh. Now that's been solved by the current Russian-brokered deal. Can't Turkey put something on the table like opening that border that everyone's been talking about for so long? Well, after what has happened in the region, Turkey immediately put out such proposals. But frankly, I don't think that Armenia is in a position to accept the brand because they were defeated, they were humiliated. So we have to give them time to regroup. And of course, they're under pressure from the diaspora that exists in France and the U.S., So basically, of course, it would be beneficial for Armenia, definitely, and for Turkey as well, if we can open the borders and have a more normal relationship. As I said, it's beneficial for both sides, but I doubt if Armenia could move ahead on this. It's a touchy subject. It's very difficult for them, but this is the time to move ahead. They will have, I think, early elections, and if there's a different result, maybe they can change their policies because it would be for their benefit. Those who are living inside Armenia are the ones who are being punished. So they have to look out for themselves. You spent so many years representing Turkey in Europe, working Turkey-European relations. In theory, on paper, there is still a conversation being had about Turkish eventual accession to the EU. 
in practice, I think some people who don't follow these issues are surprised to find that that process is technically at least still alive. How do you see this evolving? What is the future of Turkey's EU accession? Well, I think that accession will probably be seen by my grandchildren, if ever. But right now, we have to have some kind of a steady relationship with the EU. We should not forget about the overall goal of membership. But nevertheless, since it's not going to happen anytime soon, we should find a way in which we can manage our relationship, just like with any other third country. So the three components that we have in our relationship are accession talks, as you said, a customs union, upgrading it, and visa liberalization. So all of them are now, unfortunately, on hold. And at the last EU Council summit, they said that if Turkey behaves in the Eastern Mediterranean, we'll open up some dialogues with regard to upgrading the customs union and visa liberalization. But they never talked about accession. Turkey is considered to be now, unfortunately, as a third country. And you used to complain about fundamental rights, what's happening in Turkey. Now they're complaining about what's happening in the Eastern Mediterranean. So the relationship has changed from more of a, as a candidate to a transactional issue, a transactional relationship. So what to do is, I understand that you know, the last two days, I think President Erdogan talked with uh, President van der Leyen, and I understand that Charles Michel will be going to Turkey. I think they're trying to find a way to improve the relationship a little bit. But again, the EU doesn't have any carrots to give Turkey, and they don't have any sticks either. So we're in a dilemma here. Turkey should definitely move ahead with the reforms, as I said before. But again, we should be met halfway. Upgrading the customs union and visa liberalization would go a long way with regard to improving the relationship. But as long as Cyprus is a member and some other countries are opposing Turkish membership, I don't think we can move ahead on accession. Although it would be good, of course, if we can at least improve our standards of living regard to the EU are key on certain areas, whether it's the environment or consumer protection and all those issues. How is this all affecting Turkish public opinion? When I was researching in Turkey, most people I met were basically wanting a closer relationship with Europe, even if there was some ambivalence about ultimate accession. But what is the mood among Turks today about the whole European journey that was such an important part of Turkey's psyche 20 years ago? It depends on the question. If you ask them whether you want to become members of the EU, you'll get a big yes, an overwhelmingly yes. But if you ask them, do you believe it will happen, you'll get an overwhelming no. There's a lot of ambivalence. There's a lot of hesitancy, not trusting the EU anymore. But again, if you ask them, do you want to be members, you'll get an overwhelming yes. And what do you think they want from that membership? Well, for the last almost 100 years, we've tried to be part of the West. Atatürk's drive is to be more Western. And so that would be a stamp of approval that we are part of the West, finally. Nevertheless, we don't need the EU to be part of the West, but that's another matter. A lot of people think that if we are part of the EU, then we would have better standards, we would have more money, we would be able to travel freely within the EU. So for each person, it'll be a different gain. But definitely, it would be a gain. And that's what people are looking for, something that would improve their lives. That's how they see it. I feel like we could continue this conversation for a very long time. I mean, it's clear that the environment is a very dynamic one and Turkey's role, not to be too cliche about it, but you say it's regional, but this is a very large and very critical region. And Turkey's increasingly critical and, as we began by saying, increasingly active. So thank you so much, Ambassador, for joining us to talk through some of these nuances. I think this is a conversation we will be continuing to have in various permutations for some time to come. Well, thank you for this opportunity. As you said, yes, I mean, Turkey is more active, more assertive, like never before. I can use a Trump word. But, you know, this is something that we should cherish as a diplomat. But I would have preferred it to be more, let's say, dialogue driven. You know, yes, let's be active, but in a more, let's say, diplomatic manner. 
Well, we as you will keep following this. Listeners, you can get more insights from the ambassador and his colleagues at the Global Relations Forum if you follow the forum on Twitter. They're at GIFGRF, and they are online at www.gif.org.tr. And I'd also like to thank the ambassador very much. As usual, I feel that one of the main reasons that people don't understand Turkey very well is that they lack the full perspective of all the things that are happening simultaneously in Turkey. They always think it's just one thing or another. And listening to you reminded me of how useful it always was to go and learn from you in my daily work in Turkey. So a special thanks. And uh, a lot of that work is still going on from uh, Crisis Group. And you can find it all on our website, crisisgroup.org. And uh, you'll see all the, uh, not just Turkey, but all its relations with its neighbors. And you should also follow Crisis Group and Hugh and me on uh, Twitter. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olya Olaker. Also check us out on Facebook and Instagram, where we are also at Crisis Group. And we're always keen to see your reactions to our shows. Uh, and uh, so just tweet us out or give us a rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts centered around European issues. Please check out Europod to listen to the others. And as usual, we'd like to thank our producers, Boo Media, and our coordinator, Rebecca Zeruhun Asafar. Biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners. We are looking forward to talking to you again in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you, and goodbye, everybody. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.